Um, so, well, welcome everyone. This is Faded Mates. I'm Sarah McLean. I write romance novels. I read romance novels. And I'm Jen Prokop, and I read and review romance novels. This is, what is this, book five? Have we already done five whole books? I know. It's going by really fast. It is. is. Um, This is book five. This is Dark Desires After Dusk. The demons are with us. Demons. I'm so excited. Yeah, I know. Me too. Well, and not only do we get demons, which is pretty exciting, but Holly is the first, like, human, like, real human character. Yeah. And so she's also, I mean, she, it turns out, is a Valkyrie, but she doesn't know that, and he doesn't either at the beginning. Surprise! Yeah, so I think there's some interesting things going on there. You know, it's interesting because I think the human heroine is a thing that you see over and over and over again in other paranormal series, and you never, I mean, aside from Holly, you don't see anybody who sort of really thinks of themselves as a human, except for Lothair. Well, and um, ugh, Chloe. Oh, I guess Chloe. Oh, so you do. I take it all back. She does a few of them, but she doesn't do as many as the other series tend to do. And that's kind of awesome. Yeah, and they're all different. They all have, yeah, very different identities and very different pathways to immortality um, and revelations as they go. So um, when we get to another one, we'll have someone to compare them to now that we've done um, Holly. And so I'm just going to do a quick overview as per usual. Um, this is Cade, Cadeon Woeed. Is this yep. what we've decided? Well, this is what Robert Peckoff has decided. That's okay. <laughs> if you heard him say it, you would, you'd be like, oh, okay then. <laughs> um, I always in my head pronounce it Woad, but apparently I know that Robert and Cressley have a relationship of, of a sort, and I'm sure that she and he have discussed this and it's Woed. So we're going to... We're going to go with that. Um, so Cadion Woid is the prince of a demonarchy, the rage demonarchy. Um, and Rothkalina. Rothkalina. Um, his brother is a deposed king um, or a, a de- dethroned king. I was going to say defrocked. It's a different thing entirely. Different thing. Usurped. <laughs> yes. So um, and Cade has a lot of guilt. Cade, um, a, a million years ago, his brother was um, dethroned, and uh, it's because of Cade, through a confluence of happenings. Um, he was not there to protect the throne when he should have been, and instead now it's in the hands of an evil sorcerer, right? Well, or a cute dancing tree. No, I'm kidding. Oh, no. Um <laughs> Wait, Groot is the metallurgist, right? Yeah, no, Groot is Omort's brother. Yes. Yeah. So there's a, okay, so there's Omort, um, and he is the evil sorcerer who currently is living the life as king of Rathkalina. Um, But basically all the demons who live in this world are um, subject to him, and they're living in a horrible way, and... Basically, the entirety of this book and the next book that we will read in the series, which is, um, which is, oh my God, what's his name? Sabine, Sabine and Rydstrom. Um, everything between Cade and Rydstrom's books is about returning Rothgalina to its rightful uh, monarch, 
who is Rydstrom. Um, and it gets it gets weird. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but Cade, here's the thing. Last book um, that when we did um, Naomi and Conrad's book, um, Cade, wa- Cade and Rydstrom were both uh, secondary characters in, in that book. They were also secondary char- characters in Marikata and Bowen's book. They were working um, to, f- to get Thrain's key in the um, – in the Talisman High, because obviously they have a reason why they'd like to go back in time and fix some things too. Um, they lost. They were trapped in uh, the cave with the Incubi with Mariketta, Um, And they became kind of really lovely additional band of brothers in those books. Um, and then they move forward into um, Naomi and Conrad's book. And they become a sort of um, they're they're hunting Conrad through that book because Conrad has drunk the memories of someone who knows how to depose um, this evil guy and get him off the throne so that um, Rydstrom can take his rightful throne. That doesn't work out either, as we know, because we've seen Conrad and Naomi live happily ever after. Um, and now we are in a place where Nyx has said to Cade, she says it to him at the very end of the last book, she says, she offers him a choice. She says, you can have your fated mate or you can return your brother to the throne. And he chooses to return Rydstrom to the throne. Well, and it's it's both of them, right? I mean, they're both sitting there and it's kind of like, do the two of you want your fated mates or the throne? Well, they, she, but she yeah. doesn't say that to Rydstrom. She, I think they're both there. They are both there. But yeah. this is my problem with Rydstrom. Like leading mm. in, I think this is the first of Cressley's like villainous, I think for me, and we're, we'll get there in a in a a few weeks. But for me, Rydstrom is really the first of Cressley's like villainous heroes in that I think he makes choices that are are not nice. <laughs> They're yeah. unkind choices. Like his brother is faced with the opportunity. First of all, it's important to note that Kate at that point knows who his fated mate is. He's met her. Like it's not like, oh, you'll just never have love. It's you literally know that she exists. You know where to find her. And yeah. you have to give her up in order to give your brother his kingdom. And he does because he's ra- he's sort of racked with guilt. Um, and so but what ends up happening is she's not just a human math professor who is his fated mate. Um, she is also the vessel, which we're going to get to you guys. It's big. I'm like, imagine a, I have a lot of, I have a lot I'm of feelings. I'm looking at Jen's face right now. I have a lot of fucking feelings about this vessel business. <laughs> She's also the vessel, which means, um, I'm realizing that the, that the descriptions, the, the overviews of these, this, these books are going to get more and more complicated as we move forward in the series. Um, but which means, as we know, there's an accession happening, which is a war between good and evil in the lore. Um, and for the last eight accessions, um, so every accession, a child is born and it is either pure good or pure evil. And it's a warrior. So essentially, it's like if you've got this kid on your side, then you're going to win the accession. Um, and for the last there in the last eight accessions, seven have been bad, pure evil. 
Yeah. And Omort is one of them. He's a child of one of the vessels. And so that was like a little interesting tidbit, I thought, right? We know how bad he is because he was the big power player in a previous accession. Exactly. So this is one of those scenarios where I actually, I mean, we're going to we're going to get to it, but I really think I said this to Jen earlier this week. I think this book is basically romancing the stone. <laughs> and Holly, our heroine, who doesn't know anything about the lore, she is human at the start of this. She she literally is human at the start of this. Um she doesn't know that she is the vessel, but she is identified as the vessel. And suddenly all hell breaks loose because everyone is trying to get to her. She's basically like the jewel of the Nile, right? Like she... Um, the ov- the uterus of the Nile. Yeah. And they're all trying to get to her <laughs> to either kill... There are factions who want to kill her because if she's dead, she can't birth this warrior, be it good or evil. There are factions of the good who want to get to her and protect her and keep her safe for good. And then there are, of course, like lions, the lion's share of characters in the book are bad. And they would like (laughs) to get her so that they can breed her and basically produce an heir. Um, We meet her uh, at the, she's at the college where she teaches. She is abducted by a battalion of demons and taken Mm -hmm. to a dungeon where she is presumably about to be raped. Yeah. Gang raped you know, by demons. Yeah. Here's the part where I it this is this was kind of an interesting insight I had, and I maybe maybe we're like it's a lot of plot. Like let's I'm ready to talk. But um one of the things I found myself thinking is like this is the first time we ever get a heroine in mortal danger who doesn't know how to get herself out of it. And I think it's because she's human. I think Cressley's making a comment on the kinds of dangers that human women face. Yes. And Holly's really lucky, right? Because um, obviously we should trigger warning the fact that, like, yes, there is a sexual, there is an attempt at sexual assault here. Um, the But she gets terrified and instead, and in her, through her fear, she finds rage and who among us has not been in that moment. Um, and she, in her rage, she summons, I mean, it's sort of inferred that she, um, or it's it's implied that she uh, summons Freya. And, like, she summons the power of the gods, the god and goddess who make Valkyries. She is struck by lightning, and her Valkyrie powers appear. And she beheads these 10 demons oh i mean she yeah i mean she completely rips them to shreds right which is and i want to say like appreciating your point that here we are we have our first heroine who like doesn't know what to do with herself she's put in a position of not being able to fight back and then suddenly she's able to fight back one i sort of love that but we also see like this is the first time we really see a heroine like take down a whole team of villains with the hero basically nowhere, like nowhere to right. be seen. He doesn't right. turn up. Like he's, of course, terrified and he's trying to find her and he doesn't know where she is. And he's like racing around like an idiot outside. And she and he walks in and she's beheaded. He just it's carnage. Like it's Holly freaking out because who wouldn't freak out at this point? Like she's just 
destroyed 10 demons and she didn't even know demons existed 20 minutes ago. Well, and I think it's going to be interesting near the end of the podcast for us to um, the mirror, the like sort of at the end of the book, the book ending scene is one where she saves herself from Groot. Mm-hmm. And the the way her um, her mind is working is totally different. Like in this one, it's almost like she's feral. Like mm-hmm. she she defends them, but it's pure instinct. There's no part of Holly that's a part of it. It's just pure like Valkyrie lightning fueled rage. Um, it's almost like she doesn't even know. She doesn't even know really that she's done it. And I think it's really interesting, like through the course of the book, one of the things we see is her like, like Holly kind of joining with this Valkyrie self and becoming immortal, but like kind of retaining her, she has a PhD in math or is like, you know, basically, you know, one you know, some bullshitty one thing away or whatever. But, you know, I, I'm, I was like really fascinated by her evolution. Her evolution isn't just to like accepting she's a Valkyrie. It's like, I think her evolution's about, I'm both a Valkyrie and this like whip smart person and I can be both. Yes. And that's pretty fabulous because at the beginning of the book, she doesn't want it. She doesn't want it. I mean, oh, right. Holly sort of, her identity at the start of the book is very much about, um, uh, it's it's very much about sort of being an insular. It's fe- it's fearful. It's a sense of like she's she has fear of the unknown. She has fear of losing control. A deep fear of losing control because of her past experiences. Where you get the sense, Cressley sort of lays these like really lovely breadcrumbs down. Where where you get the sense that uh, there have been several instances over the course of Holly's life where perhaps she could have em- have embraced her Valkyrie tendencies, but like has resisted it at every turn. All of them sexual, I would add, um, which is another where this is our first heroine who's a virgin. Or, well, no, she's not our first virgin, but she is our first heroine who's like sexually repressed in some way. Oh, like, absolutely. She's terrified of her sexual side because every time she has sexual feelings like that sort of Valkyrie instinct comes out and we know Valkyrie's like love it. Yeah. Like Nix right. is always running around saying she, she wants to lick demon horns, right? Right. Like, we discover what that all means here. <laughs> but, but like, yes, we do. So we've talked over and over over the last couple of episodes, or I have at least, about how like this is really just like every book in this series is very much about like women and sexuality and like understanding like women as sexual beings and a sexual identity. And in this particular case, like Holly is repressed at the yeah. start of this, self repressed and. I would say like shamed, right? Like she, the like especially there's this really painful reminiscence about this teenage boy she like scared away with her ardor. And I think like that's another thing. It's not ladylike. There's a real, um, you know, Holly doesn't like people who curse, which I personally felt very judged by. Um, she doesn't like. Same, same. Right? I was like, fuck you, Holly. Um, she, you know, she wears like. <laughs> twin sets and pearls and so like i think part of it too is um you know that there's a she's very much like a an archetype for a a certain kind of like almost like a 1950s housewife except for the fact that she's also getting a phd in you know combinatorial physics or whatever the fuck it is so (laughs) i think that that's part of the thing that's that's really interesting is her you know, like what she's internalized as sort of like what womanhood should look like. Um, 
it's a very, it's very repressed and it's based on a lot of, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by it. Like we talked a lot about, um, Lachlan sort of like, what is modernity? I think Holly is the first character, the first female character who I see grappling with like a similar set of, I don't know, struggles maybe. Yeah. I think that's interesting. I think, um, Holly is, yeah, I think there's a, there's a sense from Holly from the start that, um, there's a resistance to anything that is, that is remotely beyond her control, right? Like, and I think certainly we've seen this heroine before in romance novels, um, who is kind of really put together. She's like very, she is very prim. She is very proper. And she literally ultimately like lets her hair down and becomes like, and is sort of awoken by sex. What's fascinating here is that through it, you sort of think, oh, this is what Cressley's doing. Holly's going to be awo- like, wake up right. when sex happens. That's not what wakes Holly, though. Holly becomes sort of awoken by the lore in general. Yeah. Right? Oh, so yeah. there's this remarkable scene. I want to talk about the Laughing Lady Bridge. Oh, for sure. Right? Um, so there's this great – so it's a road – this is a road trip romance. Like when I say it's it's um, romancing the stone, it really feels very sort of rollicking to me in that sense. Um, Holly is very much the sort of Joan Wilder character. Joan Wilder? The Joan Wilder? And Cade is like the perfect Michael Douglas, like with his like, um, you know, just everything about him is like wrinkled and irritating. And he's the guy who would like hack off the heel of a shoe. These were Italian. Now they're practical. That doesn't happen exactly, but, like, he hates – like, there's a moment where he's like, these shoes are ridiculous in this book, right? So um, they are on this. They're essentially, like, the – it's a bit of a MacGuffin. There's a sword that they need to get to, um, and that sword will – like, the person who owns this sword will kill – the man, the the villain, the evil villain who holds currently the control to Rothkalina. So um, Cade is has to meet Cade and Holly have to road trip um, to these like multiple checkpoints in order to get directions to Groot, um, <laughs> who is <laughs> not an adorable dancing tree, um, but a metallurgist who has forged this sword that will kill an unkillable being. And basically, the payment for this sword is the vessel. He wants to impregnate the vessel. Um, and so this is the story. We've, you know, we've been here before with many other romances. Um, so Cade and Holly end up at the second checkpoint of this book, um, which is called The Laughing Lady Bridge. And it has a remarkable story that is... Oh, I thought it was fascinating. Really emotional like so the story is basically like there was a serial killer in this town and he would abduct women and take them to this bridge and then well, he would bef- before you the thing i thought was especially poignant though is these are women who don't have a support system right like there's something really specific about how isolated they were like holly Yes, like, of course. Yeah. Of course, right? It's all a symbol. (laughs) Exactly. So he would take these sort of proper, isolated women 
and uh, bring them to this bridge where he would stab them and then tell them that if they could laugh at their circumstances, he would let them go. And of course, they never could. So he would dump them into this river and they would die. And the spirits of these women are haunting this bridge. Um, And Cade... And Holly get into an argument on this bridge and he thinks she shouldn't go across it. There's like a back and forth. And he, of course, is trying to protect her from this bridge. And he's like pulling her in one direction and the ghosts attack him. The spirits attack him. And it's confusing. And he's sure that this is some sort of sting operation, that it's a booby trap from the evil side of the lore. And he's telling her to run, telling her to run. And Holly is so brilliant in the moment she realizes what's going down, that these Mm -hmm. ghosts are protecting her. And she's the one who steps in and says, and like saves the day again. But this time, not being a Valkyrie, this time she steps in and saves the day as a human. Right. As a mathematician, right? Brilliant Holly puts it together. Well, and that's like, I think then like a real turning point for her again, like sort of knowing like when to fight and when to use logic. And there's a whole thing where she's building this, you know, her PhD essentially is complete when she completes this brilliant code. And the code is sort of like it attacks everything and she has to figure out how to get it to only attack when it's an enemy. And it's clearly it's her story, right? Like, and and there's a part of me that like really ended up admiring some of that um even though there were lots of things about this book that I I don't it was it was harder for me and it and I I've spent a lot of time thinking about why let's do it I mean I think a part of it really is okay so like when you read paranormal right you get cut loose from human concerns (laughs) and this book with like the vessel was I just was like furious right I was really furious that she's basically an incubator (laughs) and part of it is that that's how women are treated in the world the lore in so many ways is like above human like shittiness above the patriarchy and yet here's a way in which it's like codified in a really explicit way and and the other part of being the vessel that also made me furious is um the 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 father of the child is what will determine whether or not the child is good or evil it's like has nothing to do with her right like holly's inclinations will mean nothing and that sort of like genetic determinism just like made me really furious like you're just literally an incubator like you will have nothing to do with how this kid turns out and I was just like oh I hated it and I I hated the fact that she would have no say in it that it she you know what I mean like it like so much about that whole plot was just really it's it it, you know, it's like things that make me furious in real life. And so to have it be happening to Holly made me furious for her. And also, yeah, you know, so like furious reading it. Yeah, I think I I totally see all of that. Um, and I agree with it, except it and it worked for me because of that, because I felt like here's the thing. If Holly had been a Valkyrie or a witch or a fairy at the start of the book and 10,000 years old or a thousand years old, it wouldn't have worked, right? Right. Because her vesselhood would have been, they immediately would have sort of, they would have been able to protect themselves, one, 
um, they would have they would have known exactly what the repercussions were of it. Um, they would have made choices that would, if she were a Val- if she were a Valkyrie, like if she were any of those creatures, she would have been able to make choices that would prevent her from being sort of a pawn in this game. Mm-hmm. And the growth over the course of the book, Holly's journey is from pawn to queen, right? Right. Or I mean, princess, I guess, in this scenario. But and so ultimately, I will say this. The one problem that I had with all of this was that at the very start, Nyx basically shows up. Well, first of all, I I just want to qualify that Holly has a very feminist response to this idea of, like, the concept of the vessel. Like, she's like, what the hell is this? This is some <laughs> bullshit. And Cade names it. Cade, Cade says, like, oh, that's a really feminist way of thinking about it. Like, Cressley's having the... It's, I always feel like one of the things Cressley does better than anybody is she's keenly aware of how the reader is experiencing the story. And she often like sort of places she, – she, she vocalizes the reader's thoughts like in the moment, um, which she does. One of the things that I have a problem with in this though is Nyx comes origi- – comes because obviously here's a new Valkyrie. She comes over. She's like, hey, I'm your Aunt Nyx. And, um, right. And she's like, welcome to being a Valkyrie. I wrote you a letter. <laughs> and in the letter, <laughs> but like before she gives her the letter, she says, just just FYI, if you don't eat, you can't yes. have a baby. Yes. And she gives Holly power in that moment, right? And here's the yes. thing. These books are about birth control. Like every book is about yeah. birth control in some way. Like they're all different. Cressley spends so much time building the world so that birth control is coded into it so these characters never ever have babies that they aren't choosing to have which i think is really interesting right and right. holly gets given the basically like she's given an iud she's told yeah. like don't eat and you won't get pregnant right and um she chooses she eats and every time she eats i think to myself why is she eating? Yeah. Like, what is the thing that is making her eat? And then at the end, we're told, like, well, she would have gotten pregnant anyway. And that that was part of, I think, what was... Well, I think my... Here's my other problem with it. It's, you know, this is book five. It's book 18. And this baby has never been heard from again. Sure, right? The baby is Thrain's key, right? Like... Yeah, it's just... There's a... There for later. This baby exists. And at some point, presumably, this baby is going to be important. Maybe not, though, because, I mean, it would require an aging of, I mean, I guess nobody ages, so. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't really matter. Um, I think one of the other things, though, that struck me, and you and I, I've, like, saved some, like, sc- like screenshots of text where we talk about this. Part of me thinks this is really the first book where there's truly advancement of the accession plot. Mm-hmm. Right. In every other book, it's like the accession is coming. We can tell it's happening that, the, the, you know, the timing is right. But this is really the first time we get movement of like the accession's really happening that this, you know, like we're birthing the the super warrior of the accession. And my ultimate feeling was that and I and I think this relates a lot to the conversation we had about like, would this make a good movie or whatever? Um, in our AMA a couple weeks ago, but I feel like there's part of me that thinks Cressley's not actually all that interested in the accession, right? She's interested in these characters 
like falling in love and and like throwing them against each other. Yeah. And I feel like this is a book where maybe she figured out that the accession is like needs to be more background than it is. Like it's it's not actually all that interesting of a plot in some ways. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this because I I went back and forth on whether we should do this book alone. And yes, part of the reason why I felt that way is because I think this book is hard on its own because it is so tied to the book before it and the book after it. So the book that comes after this is Rydstrom's book, which is happening um, concurrently. So Rydstrom gets abducted at the very beginning of this book, which actually is the inciting – his abduction is the inciting incidents, incident for this journey that Holly and Cade take. And then he returns at the end of this book, a changed man. And that that, you know, 300 pages of Cade and Holly is about – 250 pages of Rydstrom and Sabine and I feel like what this book is doing is laying all the groundwork for the next book in the series and this is the first book where I have felt you can't start here oh yeah for sure well or it's almost like I found myself thinking about a lot about like what like decisions Cressley makes and I feel like I had this question where I thought um like what if what if like Bowen's book had come before Katerin's book, right? Like some of these books that are paired together, mm-hmm. like have to cert- happen in a certain order. And I found myself wondering, like, I wonder if Rydstrom books, if Rydstrom's book came first, if Cade's book would have been more interesting. You know, I, I mean, and I, I, and I'm not saying like, obviously, you know, there's still so much about this book. I think it's really powerful and amazing, but I think it's the first book that maybe failed to hold up to the promise of a previous book or that just I feel like really needs its companion book for for me to see how it's all going to work out. Yeah. I mean, I do think that this is one of those scenarios where in paranormal, in urban fantasy, in sci-fi, you know, you can't read book three of Game of Thrones And, like, know what the hell's going on, right? Right. And I think that's what's happening here. I also think, surely, like, right, prior to – this is Cressley – first of all, this is – everybody's learning how to write paranormal at this point, right? Right. Um, Right. It's Cressley's first crack at at paranormal. And I don't know – I don't know that this is a misstep. I just think – it's a. I think that, you know, we talked earlier today related to something else about like how structurally, like interesting structure in romance is really interesting to me. Um, and I think what's happening here is there is a really interesting structure going on between this book and the next book. And, right. and it is one of those things where I feel like on our next podcast, when we do that book, we're going to be hearkening back to this book more and more. I also think... Um, that this book is trying to do something a lot more emotional about hum- human females. And like I think this is it, – it almost felt to me like Cressley was going through a thing writing this. Yeah. Like this book is about what it is like to be a woman in yes. the world, a human yes. female in the world. Oh, yeah. I mean because that's the thing I was saying. It's like the things that Holly grapples with, right? So it's like – Am I in charge of my own body? Am I just like a vessel for men to pour themselves into? Her boyfriend is stealing her work. And Cade is kind of an asshole. 
Oh, yeah. Kate is an asshole to everyone. And and there's sort of this sort of lovable rogue, like a char- he's like a charming rogue. He's he is literally the like the Michael Douglas yes. character in uh, Romancing the Stone. Like you sort of hate, 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 love him. Um, so like she he he's not even helping her through it. And I at yeah. first that really enraged me. Like so so Holly has um, takes medication for OCD, which is an interesting. There's a whole interesting thing about OCD in this book. Um, yeah. Holly has a compulsion to organize things by um, in sets of three. She is compulsively clean. She is incredibly controlled all the time. Um, there are a lot of things about her that are um, – that could be coded as obsessive-compulsive tendencies. Um, the – there's a whole side piece, which is once one becomes immortal, is she then like if or, immortality cures us of all disease, does it cure us of mental illness is a question right. that I think is worth sort of noodling. Well, and I think or like I was talking to another friend of mine, it's almost like like there's some interesting scenes where like she recounts or recalls the the shrink who diagnosed her and and it was sort of this you know she's afraid of losing herself and that's why she acts the way she does and you know it sort of reads like again like sort of like assuming best intentions or whatever like sort of like intent it it reads very much as um these tendencies she has developed are in order to control a body she can tell is wanting to do things that she doesn't understand exactly um, which is in some ways problematic and in some ways interesting. And I I don't know where I am on that. I feel like I feel like I'm in both camps on that. Yeah, and you know what? I feel like it's okay for us to be that. I'd be pretty curious to know if someone who has been diagnosed with OCD has read this book and what they would say. And I feel like that would be interesting to hear. But it's not something I, I really feel. It made me uncomfortable. I would just say, like, there are times it felt like, um, should mental illness be, like, a plot device and something you can just, like, slough off with the mortal coil? And I, you know, again, like you, I don't know the answer to that. Well, and I also think it's interesting because I think Cade's response to it, so Cade's response to it is instantly sort of, it's not dismissive. It's just sort of, like, he doesn't even pay it any attention at all like it's it's just who she is to him negative it's just not a thing and what's interesting is at first this really bothered me like there are texts Mm. for sure that jen has with me saying like what (laughs) is with this guy like because in my mind every other cressley hero every hero i've ever written every great it's sort of like a covenant of like uh the hero of a romance novel would like tear through at one point she says i need my pills and he says we can't go back to your house because there will be vampires there and in my head i was like every single romance hero immortal or not would move heaven and earth to get her medicine destroy a like entire pack of vampires to get his heroine like the pills she needs right right Right. So, and I couldn't really understand what was happening and why that was happening. But then I sort of realized, like, this entire book is about Cade 
standing with Holly as she discovers her own power, right? Yeah. And so at no point, and at no point does he sort of help her in that. Like, there's never a scene where he says, like, let me show you what you can do. The only thing he does, he does teach her to fight with a sword, right? He teaches her to fight. Well, he teaches her, he extensively teaches her not just how to fight with a sword, but how to recognize an attacker, how to evade an attacker, how to think through being in a fight. And it's then clear at the very end that he's a big part of, like, giving her the, like, like, she needs a lot of routine and it's really interesting to go back and read those scenes because he's essentially teaching her like a, what we say in a classroom is like a thinking routine. Mm-hmm. And it's a thinking routine for what you do when you're in a fight. And at the end of the book, we see her, right? Remember, at the beginning, it was just pure instinct. But right. we see her at the end with Groot. It, it It's purely, it, she really does... She has learned how to do this thing, and it's because he taught her. Yeah. Well, he returns control to her, right? Right. Her massive fear at the beginning is not that, like, she's the vessel and people are chasing her. Her fear at the beginning is that all of these – that she has beheaded ten, like, living beings. And she has no recollection of doing it and no understanding of why she did it. And so, or how she did it. And Cade, what's, it is one of those moments where I'm sort of realizing now as we talk, like, it is a beautiful partnership. It's just not a typical romance partnership. Like, this right. is not a hero who is a savior. This is a hero who is a supporter. And I think it's also because we are very aware the entire time that he thinks he's going to give her up. Right. That he knows that this is what he's going to have to do. And I I think there's a lot of one of the things I did end up really liking was there's a lot of really fascinating kind of meta commentary on the whole idea of faded mates in this. Yeah. Right. And so at some point he defines a faded mate for her as um, it's like you're the person who I'm going to be happiest with. Actually, I should probably look up the exact quote. I'll see if I can find it because um, I definitely highlighted it with like 18 other things. And then there's a whole other part that's like really interesting where he's talking to Rock, his friend, right? His oh, the smoke demon. I know. And, <laughs> you know, and and Rock's basically like listen, motherfucker, I have no idea what's going on in your head that would even make you think about choosing her over an entire kingdom full of people. Like, I cannot, I mean, he basically is like, I have no way of understanding what's what that would even be like. And it's really, an you know, before the faded mates thing has always been like this push-pull between two really strong individuals. Mm-hmm. And this is really the first time we get like the incredible price that you would have to be willing to pay in right. some circumstances. And and how he struggles with that, especially because, you know, his primary like way of being in the world is I'm a disappointment. I disappoint people. Yeah. Right? I disappoint myself. I disappointed my brother. I disappointed my foster family. And I'm going to disappoint her. It's inevitable. That's my fate. And I ended up really liking this in a lot of ways felt like this is a real struggle. Mm-hmm. Right? Because Lachlan, you know, his people aren't going to approve of him marrying a vampire. But he's the king. He yeah. doesn't give a shit. Exactly. This is really where Cade, you see, like, this is 
this is pretty hardcore. And I did end up thinking that was really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that's that's the challenge always is this sense of responsibility. I love a hero who has heavy is the head that wears the crown, right? Yes. And and what I think and actually the more just saying that makes me think, well, maybe we would feel differently if we saw Rydstrom's book first and then Cade's. Because like Cade is such a I mean, like his he's so connected to his responsibilities like he feels deeply responsible for his brother he feels deeply responsible for the the kingdom but he also feels deeply responsible for holly in that he's like in that moment just to go back to what you were saying like in that moment where he realizes he's going to have to give her away ultimately he's going to have to give her up teaching her those thoughts the thought process of fighting, like giving her the skill with swords, like giving her the things that he can give her. It's almost as though what he's saying is like, I have to give you up, but you're going to be okay without me. Right. And right. if I do nothing else, what I what I will ensure is that you'll be okay without me. So maybe he is a savior hero. He's just a savior hero in such like a different, fascinating way. And it is. And it's. I think it's challenging. I want to talk about when I fell in love with him, though. Okay. Because as you know, at the beginning of the book, I was not in love with him. <laughs> yes. Um, and so there is a moment. So we've talked before, I think, about the fact that food is my love language and I like it when vampires yes. feed each other <laughs> or when women feed vampires um, or when Lachlan feeds Emma. Um, right. So Holly has a situation where she doesn't – she can only eat prepackaged foods. And she um, – so she eats, like, granola bars and, like, orange juice and, like, things that are in containers that are packaged right. um, because they have purity inside. Um, and um, Cade takes her out for dinner one night and she's basically like, I don't even know why we're at this restaurant because, like, what am I going to eat? I can't eat any of this stuff. Yeah. And he orders her a lobster. I know. I know. <laughs> because it's the ultimate it's in a packaged shell. food. Yeah. So she can eat it herself and nobody has touched the inside. And I was like, I oh know. My God. I love I know. him so much. And I said to my husband, this is the sexiest thing. I just read the most sexy thing in the world in this Cressley book. And he went, don't tell me I want to hear about it on the podcast. And I'm sure he thinks it's going to have something to do with like sexy horn play. And instead yeah. it's she, he bought her a lobster. <laughs> well, it is really sweet. <laughs> it really was. Yeah. Or even, I mean, there's like a scene where she like tries to open a bottle of water, but she like touches it in a way that means she can't drink it. And he just, gives her another one i mean and and sort of is like yeah these short caps must make it harder and i you know i i did remember thinking like that was pretty great that he just this is just who she was and he loved her and and that part was really um you know he he accepted her a lot more readily i think than she accepted him and i think that was an also an interesting journey right yeah um she's very not into horns Mm, too bad wait can we also talk okay first of all i love horns we've done this already if you listen to the ask me anything you know that i love horns i'm on i'm on the record for loving horns um can we talk about the fact that at the end he cuts them off i know i know then we have so this is going to come back later in the series but it's an interesting thing because clearly they grow back 
on his head. Well, and it's really interesting because I don't know if you remember this. The first time he sees Holly, which I think is brilliantly handled in a lot of ways, he recounts that he was on a job where a demon family had a son who was going to try and essentially pass and had been like cutting off his horns and doing and like they were like so embarrassed that their demon son was essentially mm-hmm. trying to pretend not to be a demon. And so I think that's some powerful like foreshadowing. But the other thing that's great about this is later in the book, we get a, a chapter where Rydstrom recounts what Cade was like when he first met Holly. And how, and it's this amazing scene where you really get just, you know, he's so like, like you said, like he's got that Michael Douglas, I'm so cool. He's just got swagger. But then you get like Rydstrom describing how just like, kind of like a, like a, just a schoolboy he was. (laughs) And then Holly says too, like you couldn't put a sentence together. Yeah. And he kept poor Cade. I know. Um, but it's interesting. What I love is, so over the course of the whole book, Holly's basically, so at first she's like, uh, horns. And then Nix comes in and says, oh, you should touch them. <laughs> you should, <laughs> yeah. I love Nix. She's so I, awesome. There's a lot of great Nix in this book, yeah. actually. Tons. She's um, she's like, you should you should totally touch them. They're, you should touch them. <laughs> Why don't you touch them? And then um, Holly's like, oh, no, thank you. I don't think I will. And then, like, it becomes clear that there are sexual organs for him. And then she's at – and then you get to the point where she's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to touch him. Oh, yeah. And right. That's when I'm he can't resist going, yeah, her anymore. Yeah, girl. And then <laughs> – Well, remember, though, the first horns she touches in the book are Desh's. Oh, Desh's. Remember? Yeah, we get Desh Nazor. And, and that's when – like she sort of like grabs them and that's when Cade's like it's like basically like she reached out and cupped his balls <laughs> right and he's so horrified and oh, so yeah. jealous he's, it's, he's jealous but like he refuses to like make it a thing well because um, he'd just been with a matra making out in the back room or whatever I know, and she was slowing time so yes um and then late and so but the whole time you holly has this sort of like visceral Again, it's that sort of fear of fear of horns and then like interest in horns and then like a lot of interest in horns. And then he cuts them off and she's like, what the hell did you do to your horns? Yeah. Bring them um, back. And it's sort of this wonderful moment where you see like she's fully now she's like fully immersed in the lore. And like, right, and she accepts. She's him, never right. going back. She doesn't want to be a mathematician, like at a research institution anymore. Like, right, she's going to be a Valkyrie. She's going to be the vessel. She ends up pregnant. She's the first mm-hmm. character in the series that we see pregnant. Right. Um, I want to go back though before you like skipped all the good sex stuff, and no, I no, feel no. Let's like talk about that. <laughs> yeah, and then we'll come back to pregnancy. Well, I could like let's not. Um, not my favorite part of my life. Um. <laughs> I loved being pregnant, for the record. Most people don't say that, but I really did. Yeah, that was not really my jam at all. My Oh, interestingly, this is sort of relevant. Apparently, so when you're pregnant, you have like 50% more blood in your body mm. than you do when you're not pregnant, which makes sense. And um, I remember being like eight and a half months pregnant and seeing my um, doctor and saying like, I feel great. Like, I don't feel tired. And her saying, her saying, yeah, you're somebody who likes the blood. Some women just really like the extra blood. Interesting. And now here there we are. Go. 
faded that we were going to do this (laughs) anyone who listens to this and is like i'm a miserable pregnant person you can message me and i will hold your hand because it's also nice to have people like that you know yeah no 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 Uh, for sure pregnancy is weird um (laughs) so yeah okay i'm like let's enough but i like some extra blood so (laughs) you know my son was born five weeks early so Mm -hmm. i also like never even got to that point it was just over well you probably would have been tired yeah I I was already tired. I, was exactly. like, I think I w- I think I willed him out. I definitely have some superpowers. <laughs> I was like, I'm over it. Um, here's okay. So let's talk about the sex thing because I do think it's really interesting the way that evolves. And I was pretty unsure because she's so repressed, mm. right? I was like, how is this going to work out? And one of the things that I thought was really fascinating is there's a couple scenes where it's almost like Holly is going through like what I was thinking of as like Valkyrie puberty. Like, she literally wakes up one night, and it's like a wet dream, right? Like, she's waking up and having... And I I just thought that was, like, really interesting, too, that, like, her sexual awakening is is not just because of things she's doing with Cade. It's also, like, her figuring out her own body. And I liked that a lot. Which is awesome. Like Yeah, it was awesome. Awesome. It really was. That whole thing. And I will say, um, we see that happen again... Chloe has that happen. Um, anytime there's an immortal who hasn't completed their journey to immortality, they're sex. They're into sex. And I just thought I thought it was like I don't know, like clever, like for lack of a better word. I was like, oh, I see what she's doing here. I like it. No, I. I mean, I loved. I love it. I loved. Um. Yeah. And I. I also loved like his whole. What was really fascinating is the sort of um, how Cade's Cade's fear of attempting her. That's how demons refer. Oh, I want to talk about that in a minute. Go ahead and that, say your you want to talk about attempting. Yeah, because I this was Let's the book where I was like, I was like, oh, attempting is bullshit. Like this is just like <laughs> the lie, like the lie of the demons. I gotta attempt all these women and find out which one is my one because Cade knows that she is his before he ever has sex with her, right? Yeah, he knows that, and so he doesn't need to attempt jack shit. He knows it, and so it's really interesting the way in so many other books, it's like, oh yeah, these demons just like fuck like rabbits until they find the one well, they can ejaculate with. Attempts like everyone and their mother, right? And that's when I was like, oh, this just seems like a like a pretext for mm. for you know like right because then they're not like the nymphs. Right then, it's like I'm a. It's a task. I'm. It's an important task. I'm out there tempting. <laughs> yes. Right. And I thought well, I just thought that was really interesting. And actually, it's interesting because I did mark this in my copy of the book. Um, that there's a moment where he says, um, "Well, I, I sort of love." He takes her computer for something, oh, yeah. and he like does a. He's like googling things, and then he's like, "I'm gonna look at her search history," which is a violation, but whatever i'll allow it for this moment um he's like i'm gonna look at her search in um history and he finds nothing and then he finds that um on google she has the safe content filter on and he says he it says he leaned back in his chair trying to imagine a life filtered of anything sexual not worth living (laughs) and then he says it's so funny he hasn't been with another woman since the day he met holly um 
which is the longest stretch of celibacy, obviously, since he first had sex because he's a demon. And then he references that he'd given a half-hearted try for a witch earlier, a few months earlier. So that's clearly Mariketta, Mariketta. Um, during the Talisman High. So, um, yeah, I mean, we all, we always sort of get really deep on Cressley and these books and, like, what they mean and the sort of um, the important emotional and social components. But it is important for us to remember that Cressley is hilarious. Oh, for sure. These right? books like, are for v- sure. incredibly funny, and we never really give it enough attention. <laughs> also, we also on my list, we also have to talk about Rock, who you already brought up. Oh yeah. Um, so we've talked. We talked in the Ask Me Anything about how I would really like to see Rock get his own book because he's a smoke demon, and smoke demons have, <laughs> um, <laughs> whenever they have sex with a, a female, they have to make an arrangement, and she they they sign a contract basically allowing her to summon. <laughs> <laughs> at any point for a predetermined length of time and I think that's hilarious but I particularly like that uh, Rock refers to them as swimbos um, right. because it instead of it being a derogatory term like bimbo it means uh, she who must be obeyed and I, yes. I think that's delightful it's another example of Cressley just being hilariously oh like, it was so funny funny and turning everything on its head Agreed. Well, and I think, well, and here's the thing, though, like, the thing I really appreciated about, back to, like, the sex, and, like, once it gets going, it's pretty hot. Back to, back to, let me, Sarah, get back on track. (laughs) You know what, you know what I love, though? So, she is so in charge of it, because he does not even really want to have sex with her, because he knows, ultimately, he might betray her. And he is very aware of the fact that if if he must betray her, then sleeping with her will really have been this, like, ultimate betrayal. Like, right, the ultimate, ultimate betrayal. Like, I knew I was going to do this, and I slept with you anyway. But it's Nyx, essentially, who's like, it's not up to him. It's up to you. Mm-hmm. And it was that moment where I sort of forgave the vessel business Mm -hmm. because it was so clear that she was going to be absolutely in charge of whether or Mm -hmm. not, right, like this is my decision. And there's even a part where she thinks about like, I have money, I I could take care of a baby, like she's deciding, Mm -hmm. she gets to decide everything. And she's the one who really initiates it and says like, we're going to do it. And he's like, "Mm." and then she grabs his horns. And it's literally like game over. Because Valkyrie's gonna Valkyrie, right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I do while we're still talking about Nyx and her, you know, this is one of the first times in the whole series where we really see Nyx like dig in and like fuss with the plot. Like yes. she comes in multiple times to like put everything back on track, um, which I think is great because it establishes her character early in the series as like someone who can oh at any point she'll she can toddle in and like fix a problem or like <laughs> right. make something harder. Um, but when, but Cade comes to her at one point and says like, I don't understand. She's a Valkyrie. You're the, you know, proto Valkyrie. Oh, I want to pause for a second and just acknowledge that somebody commented on our um, podcast that Fury is not the primordial Valkyrie. Fury is a Fury. Um, and, uh, Nyx is the primordial Valkyrie. So 
thank you for commenting. We acknowledge that we were wrong on an earlier episode. We definitely welcome you correcting us sure, if we get slide the details in and correct wrong. Sure, us is totally fine. Um, so, but Nix, you know, Nix is there, the primordial Valkyrie, her aunt. Like, she's supposed to be protecting her. And Kate is sort of like, what's your deal, Nix? Because you're supposed to be protecting her. And there's a little part of him that's, like, irritated in that moment. Like, why mm-hmm. aren't you protecting her? And she says, and this is, I want to, like, tattoo this on my body. It was um, amazing. She says, there comes a time in a woman's life when innocence is merely a euphemism for ignorance. And I love mm-hmm. it. I feel like that's the sort of driving force of this whole series is like yeah. moving from like moving into knowledge. And especially for Holly. Not just for women. Right. Absolutely. And I and I and I ended up feeling that was like a it makes sense for that information to, to be about Holly, who in one part of her life is so amazingly intelligent. Right. And in another way, she isn't. And it also felt to me about like balance. Right. Like she can't be her best self if she's like repressing this big part of who she is. Mm -hmm. And getting that sort of all in balance is what's going to make her like her, you know, the best the best Holly Ashwin that's entirely possible out there in the world. Sure. And once Holly knows about stuff, she wants to know more. Like, she doesn't want knowledge in half measures. Right. Like, if you gave Holly access to Mariquetta's mirror, forget it. Oh, yeah. She'd never come back. You're right. So I do think that that part, that, that to me was really interesting. But also that Cade, like, loved that about her, right? That he... um like at one point she sees that he's like googling things about her field oh, so that so he could cute. like talk to her oh, oh and this reminds so me of the cute. reason wait i have to remind you of the reason that i okay i went to the latin, latin. latin emergency right so there's this part <laughs> that's really funny where he is teaching her to sword fight and he tells her that essentially like uh the word sword right is essentially means like penis like right it's you know and, and then it's gladius the latin word for sword also means penis and she's like it does not and then he continues on and says that the word scabbard is the latin word for vagina right and i was like first of all i was like okay this is sort of this cute. is a latin emergency it was a latin emergency i was like i also <laughs> think though he's like trying to show her i'm smart too yeah right like it was cute. is it true I was sort of did your friend confirm? okay here's what i found out tell Sarah. me <laughs> the latin word for penis is actually penis oh, the word sure. gladius is more like cock right like she's in like we're in like a classroom and she's like whispering to me i was like okay and she's reading it and cracking up she's and but scabbard really is the latin it's word the for, word vagina. for vagina wait what is vagina then i don't know i didn't ask her I mean, that wait, can she come on Oh, absolutely. She would come on. She's been reading all the books and she's like, she's like, I didn't think I could love Cressley more. Take, um, would you please, um, have her take good Latin notes and then she can come on one time. I would love that. Yeah. But it was really interesting because. But vagina does sound like it's Latin. I'm, you know, I was, I, I speak, you know, my dad was Italian. I speak Italian. Vagina, vagina is the, it's the same word. So well, so either way though, <laughs> I was sort of like, is he just like bullshitting her? But I did think that he was sort of like showing off for her, like, I'm smart too. Yeah. So cute. I thought it was really charming. So I was cute. like, is he seducing her with like Latin? <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay. Oh, can we also say, like, for those of you who are car people, this book oh. is a big car book. It's like car porn. Um, it really is. Well, there's literally car porn in it where um, Cade teaches Holly how to drive uh, a Bugatti Veyron <laughs> and uh, she's – and it gets faster and faster and it's like 210 miles an hour. Now, remember, Valkyries really like fast cars, really yes. like fast cars. And at the time, like, when she hits 200 miles an hour, she starts to get horny. Oh, yeah. And then they – And he I can will smell say. it. <laughs> they pull over. Yeah, it's And hot. they basically have, like, sex on the top of the car. Well, because he's like, get out of this car. I need to get on you. Not not sword and scabbard sex, but – But other things they, in like, scabbard. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. It was amazing, right? Um, but I will say, I would like to also point out that we had an entire conversation. I had a – so there is there is a reference in this car to a Mercedes McLaren. <laughs> yes. And I um, – I do not know about cars, but I do know a lot about Top Gear because the Stig uh, read one of my romance <laughs> novels in Russian on a Moscow subway on an, issue, on an episode of Top Gear. You can That's see it amazing. on my website. Jen will link to it on show notes. Hell yes, I will. Um, so I have watched a whole lot of Top Gear um, and they love fast cars. And I, a McLaren is an English car. I know this. And I said to Eric, I was like, Do the, does a McLaren, is McLaren owned by Mercedes? Like, I don't understand. I thought it was a British company. And he was like, no, it's a British company. So we did some research. In fact, the Mercedes McLaren was like a one-year partnership um, where they made this Funny. one car and it's like a sedan. Like if a McLaren were going to be in a sedan, it would be this. It's still a cool looking sedan, but it's like sedan-y. And Eric showed it to me and was like, it's not really a good, like it's not really a gorgeous McLaren. It's not a sports right. car McLaren. And I looked at it and it has a higher profile. And I said, well, he's a demon. <laughs> so he would have to fit. Like this is the only McLaren he could fit in. And Eric looked at me like I had 23 heads like because i said it as though we were talking about like our Real friend people. bill who he's is just an nba for that car. Like, he, he's just too tall he would never fit in a smaller one he needs a <laughs> that is amazing so here we are at my it house is. we're all down the rabbit hole yeah no that's amazing it really is okay wait there's i'm sorry because i feel like at the end there's all the things i wrote down that i'm like i have to talk about it groot the metallurgist not the audio the small dancing tree not the small dancing tree Groot the metallurgist on the audio it's like actually an amazing voice so if you've listened to the audio you'll know what i'm talking about but the one part about this book that i felt like was extra and really i did not need was the fact that he had cameras all through their little love cabin yes and had been watching them bone for a solid two weeks gross and i was like Ugh. he was super gross and he resurrected women into, like, zombie bodies. He was gross. Like, he, this might be the grossest. Yes. He was super gross. Dorada, who comes through on Lathair, is not as – she's, like, physically gross, but she's not, like, gross gross. He's, like, a gross person. I mean, we're about to go into Torture Island, so I guess I shouldn't really judge. Yeah. But I mean, I think thematically that profile of him fits considering that she's the sure. vessel and right and like the sexual like, assaults. Yes. I mean, so in that sense, it kind of, you know, symbolically fits in with like what's threatening to her. Mm -hmm. But he was super nasty. And I have was really, really happy when 
he he kicked it. I also thought it was really interesting. I spent a lot of mental time thinking about the fact that Groot is G R O O T and Omart is O M O R T, and so there there was just like a the G and the M. It's just like a like otherwise their names were the same and just in a different order. And did that mean something? <laughs> I, and I decided it didn't. Maybe and that not. I I don't know. Had spent too much time thinking about wow, it. Wow, you're but, a nerd. You know, uh, previously I mean, established. <laughs> I was like previously established on every single fucking one of these episodes, Sarah. Latin emergency. Ah. <laughs> uh, like, literally, I was like, oh, shit, I have to find this out. We really are starting to see, like, the scope of Cressley's brain, too, here, like, with the Wendingos, which arrive. Um, so, like, they're, they're like, skin creatures. Like, mm-hmm. suddenly things get real gross at the end oh, of this yeah. book. Um, and it's like she's establishing all the baddies, which, of course, she is, because... We need, like, the again, it goes back to what Jen was saying about the accession being, this is the accession being really present in this book in a way that it isn't in a lot of them. Right. I think the thing that amazed me about this book and about all of them is not not just how well Cressley handles, like, the big moments, Mm -hmm. but how delightful the little ones are. And I'll give you an example where I literally was like, oh, like, I just loved it. So one of the things that Holly's eyesight improves, right? Oh, yeah. Like she essentially, her, her eyesight. Her eyes are healed. Are healed, right? She, they're perfect oh, because she no longer, be she's right. She's not. Sign she's me like, up for lace, Valkyrie hood. <laughs> Valkyrie LASIK coming soon. Here's the part that's so great though. When Cade then appears to have betrayed her, what Groot says to her is, you didn't see this coming, not even a little bit. And I thought, oh, like, it's this, like, her vision is fixed, but not her, like, right, like that, I don't know, like, it was like, you didn't see this coming. And I just thought it was like this really, like, moment where it just felt so, like, mm, like she'd done something really delicious, and I'm not even sure what to call it, right? Because love you that healed. about you, because that is the, that is peak English teacher. You know that oh, Venn diagram sure. where it's like <laughs> what English, what the author means, what yes. your English teacher says the author means. I think Chris, I think Cressley's amazing. I'm gonna go ahead and say there's a 90 percent chance she didn't know she was doing that. I don't care, but I, I love and it. You know what? That's fine. I don't care. I teach an amazing lessons to kids about how to recognize symbolism. Mm-hmm. And what I tell them is, I was like, it's when your spider sense is tingling. Like if you feel that it's there, sure. like well, it the book- is right. Look, I say all the time that books aren't books until they're in the hands of the reader. Like, right. They're just not. And a book to you is not the same as the, that exact same book is not the same to me. Like, it is not the same book. And so I love that. Um, I want to do our limb count. So let's do it. Well, <laughs> in this book, we're only talking about Kate and Holly. Right? Yes. We're not doing all these other people who lose everything. Well, I think on the show notes, I'll keep the running total. (laughs) Okay, because there were a lot that I didn't. There's a lot. It's too much. Okay, but I feel like just per book, I just want to tell you what happened. Cade lost both of his hands, part of his face and hair, and and an eye, and an eye. Yes, and I was like, God damn, these motherfuckers. Well, I because who else lost an eye? Uh, Conrad. No, it was when it was when um, it's Adriana on the website, on you guys. <laughs> There's a lost Bowen. Bowen lost an eye. Bowen lost an eye. 
I think there's this also this really funny part where Holly describes him like holding up his regenerated <laughs> yes, fingers. Like, this like, like wizened, shiny oh. two fingers because he's trying to drink. Yes. He's trying to like drink from demon brew and she's like, no. And he's like, I have these fingers. I can do- oh my God, Presley. Oh my God. Was- I was like, oh shit, here we are. I mean, I'm at the point now where if I get to a book and somebody doesn't lose a limb, I'm going to be like, Ugh, disappointed. What kind of book is this? <laughs> this is bullshit. Uh, okay. Yes. I have both hands, face, hair, eye, and I have horns too. Oh yeah. Self-inflicted. Self-inflicted. Although- Conrad Roth chops off his fucking hands. And those counted. We counted those yeah, in the limb count. We counted them. So there will be, so that is the limb count. I have the same limb count. Uh, so that is confirmed. <laughs> That's fact, fact verified here on Faded Mates. And Jen will add them to, we will have the updated, fully um, counted limb count on show notes. Can I tell you the one thing? Here's what I, the, the thing that would have made this book more perfect for me. Mm. And you're like not going to be surprised. He really did not do enough groveling at the end. Yeah. I get like that. He, yeah. I, I get mean, that. He, I Okay. On the other hand, I did love that she evaded him for days yeah, and like, weeks. Nope. Like, nope, she you're fired. Even, <laughs> she didn't even think he was coming. She's like, I guess I'm on this now. And I did love that. But then at the end, he, like, buys her a house and she's just like, oh, I'm pregnant. Like, it's going to be the three of us. Ha ha. Yeah. And I was like, no, I need you to. F- a house is not enough, Cade. No, not he enough. more. Um, here's a thing uh, that I would like readers or listeners and readers to come to us with. So there's a moment after they have a giant orgasm on a Bugatti Veyron <laughs> where um, Cade says, should we just do this every 500 miles or so? And Holly says, oh, yeah. 420. And, and I texted Sarah and I was like, is this like a marijuana joke? And which uh, maybe. And then I was like, well, it is a multiple of three. And Holly had its multiples of three issues. But like, so is 360. So is, you know, nine miles. Um, right. So like, wh- if anybody did, we if we missed something and it's yeah. not clear, um, because then 420 comes back a couple of times. It's referenced then like multiple times. I, I, okay, so the, I don't know if I said this to you in text. I was like, maybe it's because like all this sex is like the gateway drug for her. <laughs> I don't know. I think to this them, might like, be. I have fucking, not yet like, used my phone a friend with Cressley yet, and I feel okay. like because she did say that she would answer some questions if we had them by email. <laughs> I might email yeah. her and be like, "What's the deal on the four twenty joke?" Like I know <laughs> what is that? Um, well, and maybe it's just because I like hang out with teenagers, and I was literally like, "Is there a fucking pot joke in here?" <laughs> Unexpected, like sex jokes. Great, I'm down with that. But I was like, "Really?" So hit us up on Twitter at at Faded Mates or on Instagram. We're on Instagram now at Faded Mates Pod on Instagram. If you have any inkling as to what that 420 means outside of it's a pot joke if you know latin if you (laughs) if you know latin or if you know about cars cars there's a (laughs) lot there's a lot left to right for us to dig into Um, also tell us like how do you feel about horns yes we know kate claiborne (laughs) no 
Kate's a no. Kate's a no. And what's really fascinating to me is that I I feel like Kate and Holly, you know, I feel like Kate and Holly have have some like a an have an affinity would have an affinity for each other. They're both brilliant. They both don't like horns. But like Kate never comes to the end of the story with uh she never she never comes around on horns, although she hasn't read Wicked Abyss yet. Oh yeah. Well, so here's my other thing though. So my fr- my best friend Kelly, who made our logo, is a big podcast listener, and she thinks that we should have some like games, right? And I was like, mm-hmm. maybe every time we have a guest, we should have like a series of questions, and oh, it's yeah. like horns or claws, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Are you horny? Ever? Yes, everyone is. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, I think that's it for today. I do too. Um, what's our oh, our next book is Kiss of a Demon King. Oh yeah. Now, okay. It, the titles are changing up now. Yes, they are. The next so this is the last of the like what the hell book are we reading next? <laughs> titles. The Dark Dire Desires Needs Dusk Edge. Right. Yeah. Next book, Kiss of the Demon King. Which is interesting because what that tells me as a reader and as a writer is that at this point, book so it's book six in the series. Um, readers in 2008 were into this series because Kiss of the Demon King, when they announced that title, for sure, readers mm. were like, oh, my God, it's Rydstrom's book. Like they knew exactly yeah. who it was and what was coming. Rydstrom, king of Rothgalina. We've seen him twice in this book. We've seen him evolve from like bold brave strong king to something very different and dark yeah and uh his heroine who is a source a incredibly powerful sorceress i'll also say and maybe i've said this already and eric can cut it if i have when we ask people to be guests and who which book they'd want to be pretty much everybody says sabine sabine like they that's talk always sabine. the answer uh, that's because Sabine is awesome, and uh, we are gonna we are gonna talk a lot about heroines next week. So join us, um, and then or in two weeks, and uh, next week there's an interstitial coming. We hope you love it. We hope you'll join us, and um, yeah, stick with us, everyone. We are five books in, and there are no signs of the en- the end is not in sight. I actually did a little bit of plotting out, and it, you guys, were, you're stuck with us for a really long time. We hope you like us in your ear holes. <laughs> um, so I already gave gave you the Twitter and Instagram accounts. Um, you can find Jen at Jen Reads Romance. You can find me at, at Sarah McLean. You can find all Jen's genius, brilliant, comprehensive show notes at fatedmates.net. And you can find us on your favorite podcasting platform next week. Yeah, and you know what? If you're in Chicago or or Chicago adjacent or interested, you can also see us both at Avon KissCon. I'll just be attending. Sarah is like a headliner. That's happening in Chicago in early in April. Off, in early April, and we'll maybe we'll have some we'll have some news about meetups, etc. Um, in Chicago, and you know, hit us up. We're always we're friendly. We like to talk about demons, anything. <laughs> like just find me. Um, it was great. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks so much, Jen. Thanks, Sarah.
All right. Well, do you hear that? Do you hear? Can you hear that? Oh, the flights. Yeah. <laughs> um, is yeah. it picking up though? Like, I guess the question is: is do you see like it? I don't know, but yeah. it doesn't. I mean, like, whatever. <laughs> what it's are you a storm. Do? I'm on. Yeah. I live on the Laguardia approach. You guys, it's super glamorous. <laughs> I get a ton, and it's gonna go by. I mean. There will be a plane every, like, two minutes from now until the end of time. <laughs> until so, the storm strikes. I actually don't usually live on the LaGuardia approach. I only live on the, the LaGuardia approach. I only live on the LaGuardia approach um, when the U.S. Open is happening and they reroute oh, the, the um, planes for tennis or when there's a storm. And I guess it's wind. Like, I don't know yeah. anything about – I mean, I know that – planes are very safe but other than that i don't really know how planes take off and land although i once saw that united commercial where they have to yes. take off into the wind so i just yes. assume the reverse is true and they it's a little crazy yes in the opposite way 